this is Tiffany Bovo. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the wonderful pleasure of welcoming Mike Zani to the show today. He is the CEO of the Predictive Index, a talent optimization platform that uses over 60 years of proven science and software to help businesses design high-performing teams and cultures, make objective hiring decisions, and inspire greatness in people. He is also the co-founder and partner at Phoenix Strategy Investments, a private investment fund, and the author of the book, The Science of Dream Teams, which is what we're going to talk about today. So welcome, Mike, to the show. Tiffany, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. All right. So we are going to start off our day with our usual bullish and bearish. Bullish is you are for it. Bearish is you're against it. Nothing too painful. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. The first one. Bullish or bearish? Remote virtual teams. Bullish. Oh, good. I can't wait to talk about it. All right. The second one, four-day work week. Bullish. Okay. And the third one, robot sailing teams. Bearish. Okay. Actually, no, I'm bullish too. I, I just want okay. all three. I'm <laughs> bullish. I'm bullish on all three. Okay. I guess I'm just well, bullish day today. All right. All right. Well, the reason I asked that question is uh, Mike is an avid sailor and he was uh, the coach of the 1996 U.S. Olympic team. So that's why I asked the question. So how did you guys do in 96? 96 was great. It was one of our last really solid outings. The U.S. sailing team has been pretty pummeled in the last 20 years, um, unfortunately. But it's um, computers are sailing better than humans at the moment. That's why I'm bullish. All right. All right. Well, uh, you know, maybe you need to be the coach again. That's the difference. Perfect. Maybe it is. I, I hope you're right. <laughs> Don't sell yourself too short. Don't sell yourself too short. If that was the last time we had a great team, let's just go to the logic that it must be you, Mike. It, it, it must, must have be been you. me. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get started on this conversation because I think, uh, especially in the two questions that I asked, um, well, let's just start with, uh, you know, how you landed on the science of dream teams and what sort of got you to this place where you have really spent so much time on guiding some of the largest companies, you know, in the world, really on, on optimizing talent. What, what got you into that? You know, the, the concept of talent optimization, you know, really, it, it kind of whacked my business partner and I in the head because we, we buy used companies with other people's money. And then we put ourselves into running them. And we had just graduated from Harvard Business School, snot-nosed managers. We thought we were so smart. We got the <laughs> strategy right. We got the financing right. We totally missed the talent side of things. Like, we missed it due diligence. And for a year and a half, we bought this company and we, we got it wrong. And so many CEOs were exactly where we were, where they get a lot of this stuff right, but they have no talent strategy. It's other than boxes in Excel that say, oh, we're going to hire 12 people in Q1. And you're like, what kind of people? And what do they need to do for you? So, you know, 65% of a company's income statement in a modern company is people, people related. You're like, why wouldn't you have a strategy over 65% of your income statement? You know, so I, I say every CEO has a strategy, some good, some bad. Most have a financial plan, but tragically few actually have a talent strategy. So that's why I wrote the book, to, to whack people in the head to start developing talent-optimized strategies. Well, you know, I, I'd say that 
and now it feels like it's kind of showing itself that executives don't have that strategy because now we hear the great resignation and everyone's quitting and people, it's hard to find people to come in and work for you. And now they're kind of having to make up the strategy around talent, you know, like the plane's in the air and they got to sort of change the engine at the same time. The great resignation is awesome because the companies that have been doing a pretty bad job are getting annihilated right now. But the people who've had good cultures and solid missions and have been taken care of and investing in their people, they're not having the great resignation. They're having the great retention. Yes, their numbers are up because COVID and COVID-related stuff, but they're not having this yard sale where 50% of their people are leaving. So I think it's actually widening the bell curve that the really great companies are retaining and the companies that kind of deserved it are just getting annihilated right now. So it's coming Well, due. So when you say like a talent strategy, you know, what, what would be the top you know, one, two, three things that a talent strategy would include. It, it, it really talks about what is the work that you're trying to do. You know, if you're, if you're doing a, a, a takeout restaurant, that's a much different strategy than if you're doing, you know, you know, fine in-person dining where you're trying to get people to buy $300 bottles of wine, you, you would actually hire different servers, different cooks. And that's a very simple example. And I mean, those are both restaurants, but then you have extreme example. Are you doing, you know, biotech development or, are, are you doing a services company where you're, you're outsourcing people, you know, say administrative duties? Like you have to know what is your strategy? What is the work that you need to do? Because it, a team is not good or bad. People are not good or bad. They just might be good or bad fits for that type of work. So coming up with a, stat, a, a talent strategy starts with the design of what you're trying to build, which informs who you hire, you know, how you manage them. and you know, then you you need a diagnostic system to say, hey, are they doing good work or not? Yeah. And, you know, I often used to advise companies and specifically around sellers, that great example you gave around a restaurant, right? It's a fast food restaurant. It's a high-end restaurant. And they'd be like, we really need people to do, you know, X, Y, and Z, whatever that is. And I'd be like, well, okay, do you need to hire a high power salesperson or maybe hire someone out of hospitality that's really good on relationship and experience and all of those things that lend themselves to a great sales experience and then teach them how to be a seller and and the combination of those two things because it could be I want to upgrade your room I work behind the counter you know the front desk at a hotel I'm trying to upgrade you from the room you're in to a higher room with you know a, a greater price tag on it that's a little bit of sales, right? Or there's a problem in the room. Now you're dealing with customer service and customer experience. And so there are those skills that are transferable in some industries. Uh, and, and I guess that would lead me to this sort of reskilling conversation. If people are finding themselves that they've now learned what we've learned over the last 18 months, there's also this great reskill of, do we need those same kinds of skills we had in the past versus the skills we need in the future? And should we reskill who we have or should we hire new? Companies that invest in, I won't even call it reskilling, just skilling. Because, you know, people who need, that you need good learning and development and, and training and mentor-mentee programs, because it enables you to take more risk, enable take more risk on the hire, hire earlier in their career where they don't have all those demonstrated skills and they might be an emergent candidate. Or in your instance, where you're reskilling, where you're a fantastic employee, you're committed to the mission, 
you're you're giving it your all, but your job is morphing, and and we need to get these these done, these new things done. So I think I think great companies long, over longitudinally, long term, need to have that scaling function. Well, you know, there's this long debate, soft skills, hard skills, like what are the skills of the future, right? And people are like, well, what is a soft skill? And I remember giving a uh, interview and I was saying, look, this is what employees are looking for, right? They want, you know, safety and longevity and security in their jobs. But what they really are trying to learn is how, how do I become like more resilient and more responsive and maybe more empathetic. And I want to, you know, be okay with change and those kinds of, I'm putting air quotes up, right? Soft skills um, that sometimes are not taught in an MBA program, right? Uh, What do you usually advise on this learning, constant learning versus reskilling, which I really like uh, when it comes to those skills that are a little more human-based than productivity-based? Yeah, I, we spend a lot of time on, not surprisingly, beha- behavior, understanding behavior, behavioral preferences, and work styles, because I think there's a bridge between you know soft skills like you know, uh, are, are you empathetic? Um, you know, do you have grit? Things that are really even hard to measure versus behavioral dynamics. Like you said, I'm, you know, someone comes in there. I, let's just say I'm consulting to doctors, or in the med school, I'm not going to tell them to be a doctor or not. But I might tell them, hmm, your behavioral profiles are going to lean you yourselves, this group, to being specialists. This might be great for the emergency room, you know, super jugglers. Others, let's just say pediatric primary care. You have three patients. You have both parents and, and the child. You know, like the, the amount of soft skills, I mean, but the behavioral profile that you need for that has to be much more collaborative. And it's sort of like, yes, there are soft skills, typically hard to measure, but there are very hardcore behavioral drives, which are easy to measure, and then cognitive capabilities, making sure they have the cognitive capabilities to get something done uh, and manage that complexity. Because you're really just trying to get people, if they're successful in their role, they're happy. And if they're happy, they're, they're going home to their spouse, their partner, energized, you know, because they're a good fit for the work they do day in and day out. Yeah. And, and uh, I just did some research last year that I'm going to give you that the sort of the quote that impacts it, right? It's it, the fastest way to get customers to love your brand is to get employees to love their job. Kind of full stop. I right? love it. Yep. And we um, went out and did research and we said, if you have empl- high employee satisfaction, it leads to higher customer satisfaction or customer experience. And we actually causally found that it gave a 1.8x better growth rate. So for a billion dollar brand, it's a $40 million impact. Just on pulling, kind of connecting those two things right? And looking at employee satisfaction with a new lens. But I'd love to know your take on when people, when I say that statement, that I feel like the definition of those things pre-pandemic and today look very different. Like what an employee might've felt satisfied them, right? And invigorated them and energized them 18 months ago or two years ago may not be what it is today. Have you seen that shift during this time of how those individual human expectations have changed? I, I mean, we've abused our workforce in the last 18 months like none, none other before. 40 million people got laid off in six weeks. 100 million people started working from home in some weird way or trying to work from home. Another 100 million people were 
we're, we're working under stress of lack of safety, wearing you know, safety and equipment. And now we're all trying to go back to some sort of hybrid. And most people's hybrid is a lack of a plan, not a plan. <laughs> you know. And they're being buffeted by, oh, it's the Delta virus. You're like, no, you just don't have a plan. It's not the Delta virus. Um, you know, some people don't want to go back because they actually hated their commute and they didn't realize how much they hated it until it was gone for a year. So I, I think we're we're heading towards a, a new normal, which is has nothing to do with the old normal. And it, it's going to turn out to be a blessing in disguise. Um, we won't look fondly on the COVID work from home that much, but the lessons learned and what it's expedited in terms of a new way of work, like you got to the four-day work week. We've proven that productivity is hanging tough working from home. We don't need FaceTime. So why can't we trust people to do their 40, their work, say hypothetically 40 hours in four days, not five, and enjoy their life more? That, that's a simple thing to do. Now, there are, there are places, like if you're in retail and someone needs to be let into the fitting room to try on a shirt, someone's got to be there. So we can't, completely abandon all hours, but we can certainly take the majority of employees and trust them to stay productive and work at their own pace. Yeah. We actually found something called the appointment economy, almost on the example you just gave, like set an appointment to go try on clothes, you know, between 10 and 11 AM. So the store employee knows there'll only be two people in there at one time. You get one-on-one -on -one service. You can try on clothes, right? You feel like it was even a better experience than you might have had pre-pandemic when there was 50 people in the store and everyone's, you know, waiting for the for the room to try on. And then there's clothes all over the floor because they just don't have enough time, right, to clean out the room. And so, you know, it, I agree that I don't think we're going to go back. And I think the lessons learned will carry businesses um, to a much better place than where they started. Uh, but, you know, I, I think the other thing that I'd love to hear from you is during this time, I feel like more executives and leadership teams have tried to understand through data and feedback what's going on in their employee environment. Since you said, right, 65% on average of the expense on the P&L is human related. Um, they are not an asset, right? They are, they are the business um, for another conversation probably, but on the data and feedback, what have you seen that's really worked? So you're listening to this, you've got a team of people, wow, I don't even know if my people are happy and if they wanna to go to a four day work week or if they feel satisfied and energized, what's your recommendation to actually ask those questions, listen and then action uh, change? It, it has to do with like 10 different flavors of asking. You know, there's one, one flavor of asking is gonna be the sort of sentiment polling or pulse polling that we've, we've done a lot more um, since the pandemic. And we actually hijacked one of our, we started doing weekly uh, TV town halls with our employees. We've, we've now taken them into monthly because we only needed the weeklies in the heart of the pandemic. But we were running like mentee-based polling, really fun polling, and people can see real-time anonymous answers and get like, how are you feeling today? And you get these modes, and it's this is no different than the pollsters for political campaigns saying, hey, your new speech, it's not polling so well. Now, there's also, we, we tell our managers, especially right now in the great you know, resignation, it is easier for people to keep their current job than to go find a new one and take risk on that company. So go ask your people right now. Go ask your people right now. What can I do? What can we do to make your job better? 
You know, it's going to be easier to do that. And by asking these questions of like, and I realize maybe I'm the problem. Maybe it's me. Maybe you need to report to someone else because I'm not such a amazing person. But if, if you're going to really engage with people in a way that shows that you've got their back and you care about them, you need to be asking those questions in 10 different ways, whether it's short-term polling, employee experience surveys, one-on-one conversations, uh, having your people ops department really do a lot of work for you as almost a back channel. So you have a an honest place to like, it's almost like going to talk to the, your priest. You're like, hey, you go to people ops, you're not going to find out about this. Um, and uh, I, I think it's 10 different lever, le, le, levels and layers of asking almost the same question. How are you doing? There is power in becoming a master asker. <laughs> a master asker of knowing when to ask the right question to whom, what to do with that answer. Right. Because someone might say like, you know, if you ask me, so Tiffany, what can I do to, you know, make you be more engaged? And I might say, well, I want, you know, one, two, and three. And you go, okay, well, one and two is never going to happen, but three, maybe I like three. Right. But don't just ignore that. I asked for one and two, got to find a way to sort of give feedback. And I, and I think, you know, it was a 2019 Gallup poll um, that we actually referenced in our research as well, that 85% of workers were not engaged pre-pandemic. That, you know, what do you think has happened about employee engagement over the last 18 months? Because especially as productivity has been, like, to your point, at an all-time high, like people are not working less, they're working harder. And so are they just working harder and less engaged or are they working harder and now they're more engaged? I actually use this uh, two-by-two matrix you know, it's, it's high engagement, low engagement on one axis, high performance, low performance on the other axis. And everyone love you, you got to spend time in your high highs. Those are your cultural champions. But my favorite quadrant is the high performance, low engagement, because these are your grinders. They're grinding out a lot of work, a lot of productivity without being engaged. And this is your opportunity one-on-one. This is not a policy change. This is a one-on-one turnaround. How can I make your life better? And they have to believe that you want to do that. It can't be some platitude. This is true turnaround. You're like, I want you to be here. You're important to the company. I need to make your life better. Now, you know, the the, the high engagement, low performance, well, those, 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 those people can make a toxic culture over time. And your low lows, I mean, everyone's got them. Shame on you for not for if you have too many, but they're contaminating your environment. They really you you have to not listen to them. And the reason we came up with this is we had this we had this theme in a lot of our engagement surveys on Glassdoor saying we're going too fast. And then there was a there was a quieter theme, and these were from the high performers that said we're not going fast enough. Could you imagine slowing down your company because your low engaged low performers were saying I'm, I'm drowning, I can't keep up. When your high performance, high engaged employees are saying speed up, like you, you really need to understand where those, that engagement's coming from and, and have it cut by performance or you're never going to create a world-class team. Well, so you've just given amazing advice for leaders and managers of people. What about individual contributors that just don't feel engaged? And so now they have to go to their manager. And maybe ask hard questions, which not everybody feels comfortable doing, right? They're either nervous about what they might say. They don't feel confident enough to have the conversation. They're, 
you know, what, for whatever reason, you know, not everybody can just be like, Hey, I I'm just, I'm not inspired. <laughs> I'm not engaged. I want to be here. What can I do? You know, like as an individual contributor who either has a boss who isn't asking these great questions you've just outlined, or they are, but maybe you feel like they're not the right boss to your point. I, maybe I need to go to another group where I feel more inspired. What do you, and how do you recommend somebody who is, um, wants to have that conversation with a manager, how do they go about it in a way that doesn't potentially it, it, backfire on them? It may not even be the manager, but they're, they need to find out the sources of their disengagement. And it usually falls into one of four buckets. Are you, are you, are you not connecting with your job? Are you not connecting with your manager as the second? Are you not connecting with the team? And broadly speaking, the team of people you work with mostly on a day-to-day. And then lastly, are you not connecting with the company? you know, culture included. So you don't feel, and if you have to know those sources of disengagement. Now, if you're not connecting with the company, like if you want to, you know, do good for the world, you know, don't work for an investment bank. If, if you want to make a lot of money, don't work for a not-for-profit. You know, like you could, you're like, maybe you should go somewhere else. But the other three can really, you, you could, you can modify, morph job, change jobs internally. You can change managers internally. And you, and you can work on team dynamics so you f- you feel less like an outlier on this team. But you have to understand the sources of disengagement. And it's either job, manager, team, or company. And when you know that, then you can, you'll be able to triage and say, maybe I should get out of here. Or maybe I should try and intervene in, in some way. If it's your manager, it might not be a direct frontal assault. It may be talk to people operations and find out, you know, hey, I, I love working here. I love my job, but I'm just not clicking with my manager. Maybe maybe you can help. So that would lead me to believe that you agree with the statement that people don't leave companies, they leave managers? I would say it. It the manager is disproportionately larger than one-fourth because they just gave you four. Um, but it's not the only answer. You know, people are, a lot of times are in the wrong, wrong job. Um, and, and they're in it for a number of reasons. They might have been like, you know, I went... I became an accountant, so I went into accounting, and they don't want to be in accounting. And or their first job was in sales because that's the job they got, and they 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 weren't meant to be in that type of direct sales. So, I I don't think it's just manager. It's easy to throw the bus throw the manager under the bus. They often deserve it. Um, but we do so little to train managers. If you look at how this happens, you probably did a good job on a project or a process managing it. They gave you a little bit of resource. You did okay. They give you more resource, maybe a little budget. Now all of a sudden you have three, four people. And the only thing that they did to train you was they just gave you stuff. And you probably thought to yourself, oh, I want to be a good manager, so I want my next promotion. So you thought, you're like, who is my best manager? And you started mimicking their style. And the only reason they were your best manager is because their style matched your, what you liked. So you're just perpetuating what you like. You know, Good managers need to be trained to modify themselves to get the most out of their people. And we've never given them the tools or the instructions or really even the green light to go do that. Um, and we can unlock a lot of power with that sort of you know, manager development. Yeah. And I feel like this is a great time where you know, managers are at a crossroads. Go back to the way that it was the status quo where I was comfortable as a manager, as a leader, before I didn't have a roadmap to what we're now dealing with. Like you said, it's not Delta variant. You don't have a plan. Well, (laughs) 
going down your list of things that executives did not have plans on right underneath talent would be if a pandemic hit. I mean, there was no plan for that. Although if you were listening to what everyone has been saying over the last 15 years, they've been saying there's going to be a global pandemic at some point in time. And so many, almost all public companies did not have a plan or a scenario plan around. That's why they didn't call this a black swan event because it wasn't a black swan if you were paying attention to what the research Bill, Bill Gates knew exactly what was going on. We should have all listened. <laughs> right? Okay. So, you know, in, in, in wrapping this up, um, what I, I'm just going to kind of put you on the spot here. What exercises would you, you know, habits to form, podcasts to listen to, obviously your book, uh, uh, for sure, The Science of Dream Teams, but, you know, are little activities they could do every day to either get the confidence to have that conversation with their manager or as a manager, actually do that self-reflection and have the self-awareness necessary to make those changes. Um, you know, what would you advise people just one or two little things they could do every day that a year from now, they'll be miles better than what they are today. I got to give credit to Jim Allen for this framework of front of t-shirt, back of t-shirt. The, the, the self-awareness is, is the short answer, but the front of t-shirt things are every, every reason you've been given a job your whole life. The back of t-shirt stuff is just as clear of a list, except most people don't want to talk to you about it. There are things on the back of your t-shirt that take you out and keep you from being the best person you can be. If, whether you're an individual contributor, new manager, CEO, agent manager, whatever, these back of t-shirt things, you need to not only identify them clearly, own them, but you have to identify the triggers so they don't take you out because you on your worst day are when these things rear their ugly head. So if you're interested in winning with and through people, go on a self-awareness journey. It's going to be the best, it's, it's, it's the, it's the best recipe for success. And, and probably one of the most uncomfortable. <laughs> so. It certainly can be. Yeah, it can be. Like I haven't been a people manager in a long time, uh, 15 years, actually. I haven't been a people manager, but for the first 15 years of my career as an individual, individual contributor and then became a people manager. But the mistakes I made then, I still make now. You know, like my back of the t-shirt though is interesting because it's sort of like the back of my t-shirt has a little hand with a little sign and every once in a while it'll pop out and go, you know better than doing what you just did. And then I, and I know it right away. Like I do it and right away I know, Shouldn't have sent that email. Shouldn't have said what I said. Should have said it this way. You know what I mean? And you, so, you know, I, I always do the, if you're going to write an email or say something, wait five minutes, read it again. You probably won't send it or send it to yourself. <laughs> and then you feel much better. Yeah. I, and I, if I was coaching you and I'm not, but if I, if I were, it's like, Hey, how do we, how do we get the signs that you're doing that and that you're about to do it? And you're just like, no, I'm going to choose the higher road today, you know? And yep. And it, it, it often saves more time in the end because the, Absolutely. the, back, <laughs> the backtracking Absolutely. from those emails. It's sort of like the front of the t-shirt is this whisper, it's, you know, loving and caring. The back of the t-shirt is like this neon sign, like whack-a-mole trying to stop you from doing the back of the, it's a back of the t-shirt sure. stuff. Anyway, well, listen, Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, spending, you know, this time with you. It, the insights were just incredible. It's a perfect time as everybody is trying to figure out what to do next. Um, but how can people keep in touch with you and follow your work and see what you've got coming up next? Well, if they're interested in the, the science of dream teams, uh, dreamteams.io is the book's website and they can read a sample chapter and 
actually take a behavioral assessment and get their results. Uh, but if they're interested in talent optimization, uh, predictiveindex.com slash learn, there's a tremendous amount of free knowledge there and certifications actually on talent optimization, and they can learn a lot about the discipline. So if you're more of a hardcore human capital type person, you know, that, that would be for you. But uh, I, I just hope people want to go on the journey. I think everybody wants to go on the journey. I think people are scared to go on the journey, but hopefully this podcast uh, will help you find your way forward. So thank you again, Mike, for joining us today on the What's Next podcast. Tiffany, thank you. What a great conversation with Mike. Perfect timing to have a conversation about people. There's nothing more important than the people who work for your business, who serve your customers, who design your products, and do everything around your organization. So. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Please pick up a copy of his book, The Science of Dream Teams. Take advantage of his free resources that he shared with you on the web. Thank you for joining me today on the What's Next podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, share with your friends, and go out there and have a great day.